All right, welcome everybody to another edition of the Legal Tech Week, Journalists Bloggers Roundtable, where we talk about the week's top stories in legal tech and innovation and, and other stuff. I am Bob Ambrosi. I write the blog Law Sites and also have the podcast Law Next, and uh, I am moderating this panel. And our panelists today are starting from my left, Molly. Hi, I'm Molly McDonough. I'm a uh, media strategist and consultant based in the Chicago area and a producer with uh, Legal Talk Today. Nikki. I am Nikki Black. I am the Legal Technology Evangelist with my case law practice management software. I write legal tech columns for the ABA Journal, Above the Law, the New York um, Daily Record, and I also regularly write for the My Case blog. Victoria Hudgens. Hey everyone, my name is Victoria Hudgens. I'm a reporter based in Philadelphia where I write for ALM. Mostly you'll find my byline on Legal Tech News where I write about cybersecurity and how technology is impacting lawyers. And Steve Embry. Greetings, everybody. I, uh, Steve Embry here. I write the blog Tech Law Crossroads, and I'm in Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, a former practicing lawyer. You finally got it right, and you didn't have to practice anymore, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it only took, I'll uh, forget how many years. <laughs> All right, Zach Warren. Hey there, everybody. I'm Zach Warren. I'm editor-in-chief of ALM's Legal Tech News based out of Minneapolis. Um, you'll also find me on law.com and a few other ALM brands. And uh, last but not least for today, Victor Lee. Hi, everyone. Victor Lee. I am assist assistant managing editor for the ABH Journal. I handle the business of law uh, section for the magazine. And... Uh, a couple of our usual panelists, Joe Patrice and Caroline Hill, aren't able to be here today, but we will carry on without them. Um, so uh, we didn't meet last week, but uh, there's been a lot, been plenty to talk about. And uh, as uh, seems to be a, a daily uh, or weekly event these times, there are more mergers and acquisitions to talk about. But uh, I'm going to exercise my, my moderator's prerogative today and just start by talking about these uh, a couple of different uh acquisitions that I reported on this week at my blog and in, in the practice management space. Uh, and I think what was interesting about both of these is they, they kind of occurred stealthily. Uh, and uh, this is, you know, we're, we're so used, I think, to uh, probably all of us uh, on this panel being hounded by PR people who want to, uh, you know, make a big deal out of uh, acquisitions that they're uh, involved in or representing uh, and you know, companies tend to uh, tout this stuff uh, very loudly, uh, but these are a couple of instances where they happened very quietly. And, and one was uh, involving practice management company, my case, I'm, I'm not sure if we know anybody who works there, but we might know somebody uh, who's involved with that company, but um, they had acquired CasePeer, which is another sort of a case management platform kind of focused on PI law, plaintiff's lawyers, and also acquired Woodpecker, which is a legal document automation software. And uh, I think both of these happened uh, a little bit ago um, and uh, was finally able to uh, confirm it this week when I when I called uh, the my case CEO and asked him about it. And he said, yep, uh, these, these they happen. Um, and I just thought it was interesting that they hadn't really talked a whole lot about it. And then uh, just just today, uh, I reported on another one uh, involving the acquisition of Tabs 3, which is, I think, kind of notable because Tabs 3 is one of the oldest uh, uh, practice management softwares out there in business since 1979, uh, which is uh, old even by my standards. Uh, and uh, they also own Cosmolex, which they had acquired a couple of years ago, a cloud-based practice management um, platform. And... and uh, uh, it was interesting because there, because they're, they're the private equity firm that formerly uh, owned them had announced the sale of Tabs Three a couple of months ago, but never said who they sold it to. Um, and uh, it uh, it appears uh, from what I've been able to find out that it was in fact Profit Solve that uh, that bought uh, the the uh, company, uh, and uh, Profit Solve is. Uh, 
the company that last year uh, acquired Rocket Matter and, and Time Solve, uh, formed by a company called Lightyear Capital, as a kind of a, a, a parent company for these various practice management companies. So it makes a very interesting combination uh, with uh, already having Rocket Matter and Time Solve, and now adding Tabs Three and Cosmo Lex, and they also had already had the Lex Charge payment platform that Rocket Matter had uh, acquired. So. Um, Interesting stuff in practice management. We've been seeing a ton of, uh, you know, practice management consolidation uh, uh, in, in recent weeks, in recent months, recent years. Um, but I thought this, these two stories were particularly interesting for the, the stealth aspect of them. And I'm not entirely sure why that was the case. That, that's my question is, you know, what's the benefit? Is this, is this more to give the companies time to consolidate their operations so that they're more seamless for, for bundled uh, products? I mean, that's the only thing I can think of unless they're, uh, well, I have another idea, but I'm just curious, especially like uh, Zach and, and Victor. Well, I'm curious about tabs three, because as you were talking, I went back into my emails and I, I had heard something about them potentially getting sold a couple months ago and got no commented very quickly. Um, so I, I got the impression that they in particular were looking for a partner for a while. I don't know when they finally found one, why particularly it would be stealthy, but I think from their standpoint, it kind of makes sense of we just couldn't achieve this scale on our own. So we want to plug into something larger and something like profit solve is a large way to do that, but why they wouldn't make a big PR deal out of it and specifically no comment when I did ask previously, I don't have a good answer. Yeah, I should say I had reached out to them back, I think it was in March also, when they announced the sale, when the private, former PE firm announced the sale of them. And I, I, I don't think I even got a no comment. I don't think I got an answer at all. So uh, you're, you're, you're right, Zach, you got a no comment. Um, but and, I think from what I can tell, that, that happened at the time. It's not like they got sold and, and ProfitSolve just picked them up recently. I think it all happened at one transaction. Yeah. Well, I, I feel like PE companies can be, you know, some 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 of them want to make the big splash, like the one, like you know, like like your your banding companies and like your, um, you know, the the was the KKK, whatever the KKR or whatever that 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 big one is. I, I didn't right. want to say, but uh, but um um. But then yeah, I mean like uh, you know, some some of them I find that yeah they 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 they, they like they like to kind of operate stealthy under the radar, um, you know, not really making a big splash or things. I don't I don't yeah I don't know if it's a company thing or if it's like uh, the regulatory issues or if there's um, you know other other things that that happen. But yeah, I mean I guess you know maybe maybe this had just been like a traditional M and A deal then 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 it'd be a little more surprising. But um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think I think each company has their own culture and, 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 and way of doing things. Yeah, I mean, I, sh I should just note that when I, I did talk to Jim McGinnis, who's the CEO in my case, who, who said he said it wasn't that they were so much trying to be secretive as that they were still working on the strategies around how best to accelerate the growth of the companies that they had acquired. Uh, whatever that means. <laughs> so, so I just, from a marketing standpoint, it, it just seems like a missed opportunity to um, at least get the brand recognition in the media. I mean, we're, we've talked a lot about how hard it is to get, um, especially older established companies, to get the word out about their products and services. Uh, so usually this is the time to do it. This is, I mean, this is the time that, that there would be pickup is when, when there's an acquisition. And um, it seems like there should be at least some type of statement um, available that, that, that would give them that, that uh, media boost. So I was surprised, I'm just surprised by the stealthiness of it for that yeah. reason. Yeah. I mean, I think we all know it, it, it often happens because we'll probably get these things under embargo sometimes that there will be an acquisition and they're gonna delay three or four weeks before announcing it or something like that. That happens pretty commonly. And you know, I can understand wanting to kind of get your ducks and ducks in order and whatever before making an announcement. Uh, but the, the, I think that the span of time here uh, was interesting because you know you just kind of can't sit on something like that too long without it, you know, word coming out. I mean, people are going to pick up on on the fact that it was 
uh, happening. Uh, and, uh, you know, why not get ahead of it uh, and, and get the announcement out there, but so be it. Um, all right, any other thoughts on that before we, and I, and I think I've, the, uh, forgot to mention the Abacus Next announcement just last week too, they had uh, picked up, um, um, what did they do? Um, blanking on the name. Um, so uh, we can talk about, we've got a couple of other stories to talk about this week. Uh, Nikki, do you want to talk about uh, one you had picked up? Sure. Um, I actually wrote about it for uh, the Daily Record and I submitted it yesterday. I think it was published online, but um, it's behind a paywall. But essentially what it was was that, uh, um, and I will put um, a link from Sharon Nelson's site. She wrote about it um, and that's what caught my eye. Um, it's this uh, idea that New York along with a few other jurisdictions are um, passing uh, um, legislation that relates to ransomware. Um, New York's is the only one, I don't know if that's gonna work. Um, well, there, New York's is the only one that applies to private companies. The others apply to state funds, but essentially what the legislation says is that when there's been a ransomware attack, it prevents the um, business owner from paying the ransom. New York was the only one that prevents private business owners. The other three states prevent um, state or tax funds from going towards the ransom. And the idea behind the uh, legislation is it's going to um, remove some of the incentive to bring these ran uh, to attack things through ransomware. Because if you're not going to, if, if the companies are prohibited from paying the ransom, then there's no benefit to holding stuff ransom. So that's the theory behind it. But I, what I found to be interesting was twofold, especially New York's as it relates to private companies being prohibited from paying the ransom. First of all, it's um, sort of an anti, it's not a very business friendly decision because it prevents the businesses from getting their data back. Uh, and um, oftentimes, you know, it's not always their fault that they get hacked or that things are held ransom. Um, sometimes, it, you know, businesses, even the best businesses are sometimes going to have these loopholes because they forget the update software right away. Or um, there's some vulnerability that they're not aware of in the system, even with the best IT staff. So this idea that they're going to be prohibited, and it's proposed legislation, but prohibited from paying the ransom really does seem to penalize businesses. And I don't know how that's going to make, maybe people aren't going to want to do business in New York anymore if there's a risk of that. But the other thing I thought was particularly interesting, and this was the art, um, angle that I took from my daily record article, was that um, it's just one more reason why you should be in the cloud because what ransomware does is it locks up your premises based systems and the data that's stored on the servers located in your law firm um, or your office if you're not a law legal entity but I'm going to talk about law firms specifically if you're in the cloud um, or if you back your data up into the cloud even though they're holding your data ransom and they've obviously gotten access to your data which is a problem in and of itself but if your data is backed up in the cloud or if it's only in the cloud and they've locked your systems down, you still have access to all that data. And if it, none of it's on your local systems, then it also isn't in the hands of the bad actors. So it's just one more reason why lawyers should back their data up in the cloud or just store it in the cloud with possibly redundant backups in the cloud. You know, if you really wanna have redundancy built in and not have it all with one company. but. Uh, you know, I think we all learned from the pandemic that uh, the cloud is the only reason anybody was able to get work done during the pandemic in terms of remote work. And with all uh, with this seeming trend with um, ransomware prohibiting people from paying the ransom, just get your data out of the off your servers and put it somewhere in cloud servers so that that way you have access to it. So I just thought it was interesting for a number of different reasons. Yeah, you know, I thought it was interesting too, and I. I um... I would like to think that the driving force behind these legislators and coming up with these uh, no ransomware payment statutes is to drive people to the cloud. Um, I, 
the practical side of me thinks, no, they, they just really don't kind of understand the problem real well and want to equate this to like a kidnapping of a person or something. And it's really more akin to, I mean, it, cybersecurity and data breach is just a fact of, a, a a fact of business life. And it's, you know, it's a cost of doing business these days because you can't completely you know, keep your, your system from being breached. You can make it hard to, and you want to do all that. But um, so I thought is, I mean, it, it, that may be the impact, Nikki, and I hope that it is to drive people more to the cloud, but it did strike me as kind of, you know, once again, sort of this misunderstanding of the kind of the problem that, that is behind all this. I do kind of wonder if it's part of an overall strategy to to thwart, I mean, to try to create some justifications for not paying. Um, the, I just posted in the um, in the chat that uh, New York opened the first, it's the first municipality to open uh, a physical cyber attack defense center with like two over 280 partners. And it's, it's just, it's, it's like based in a skyscraper in lower Manhattan and they send response teams, but kind of buried in this Wall Street Journal article is the stat from this, um, he's the New York police um, deputy commissioner of intelligence. And he, and he said something that um, there's a cyber attack in, across the country every 14 seconds and 40% of the companies pay and 80% are attacked again. 80% of those are attacked again. So I, there's got to be some kind of incentive to not pay, um, but, or, you know, something to, 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 um, to discourage having to pay, but, I, you know, interfering with the business's ability to operate seems a little extreme too. Yeah, and, and, and it's sort of a society interest too. I mean, when you think about the, the breach of the pipeline business, I mean, a lot of people were thankful they paid and got the got the got the oil flowing again, right? Otherwise, they get no gas, and so it's a complicated issue. I mean, I, yeah, I hear what you're saying, Molly. If if every business said we will never pay, it's illegal, and boom, then the the market for for the bad guys would dry up. Uh, you would think, or theoretically, but that probably isn't going to happen. So I don't know. It's it's a tough issue. I hadn't thought about that a lot. They'd yeah. still steal the data and sell it on the black market or something, or find other That's ways to profit off it. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, it's just, I, I always get the, like whenever I see these kind of things, I always think of that. Oh, we don't negotiate with terrorists. We don't negotiate with terrorists. It's like I think I think people have been watching too many TV shows and movies. It's like when they're like, oh, well, we're not going to negotiate, and then and then and then and then kind of use that as like their 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 way of like kind of dealing from a from a, from a from a position of strength, even though they're 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 in a position of weakness. And just yeah, I mean, I just I just think that, that that this could open up all kinds of all kinds of issues. But also, it's just look like it's a business's right to pay for pay, pay for data if they want it if they want it back, right? I mean, like this idea that like you know that that, that New York would just would just say, oh well, you can't do this. It's like, well, what if they want to? What if what if what if the money's no big deal for them and they, and it's and it's worthwhile for them to? It makes more business sense for them and it's and it's better for their shareholders, better for their better for the data and the people that they you know who who who's, who's whose information could be exposed. What if like it's it, what if it what if it's the right thing to do ethically, business wise and whatnot to pay to pay for it? Then they should be allowed to do it, right? But yeah, I don't know. I I, I guess it'll be interesting to see how it plays how it plays out. Yeah, there are, yeah. there are already disincentives uh, in the federal law. I mean, there there are the what is it, U.S. Treasury regulations or or something to that effect uh, uh, prohibit uh, financial institutions from facilitating ransomware payments under the Trading with the Enemies Act or, or whatever that is, assuming that most of these ransomware demands are coming from countries that are covered under that act. Uh, so there, you know, any, any larger corporation or, or law firm or anything is probably already gonna be having, uh, facing some issues around possibly uh, crossing federal regulations uh, in that regard. But ultimately I would agree with what Sharon, I think Sharon's kind of sort of concluding paragraph in her post was basically this, this is, it should be a business decision by the, by the businesses and to decide how to deal with it and how to respond to it. And I don't, I don't really think it should be a matter of legislation at all. That's my opinion. Kind of to Molly's point though, I think it is interesting to think about like it could go one or two ways where hopefully kind of to Nikki's point, this means that people will think critically about where their data is stored and whether it should be in the cloud and the security controls that are around it. 
but I could also kind of see it going the opposite direction of people thinking, oh, well, this is a law. Well, now I just don't have to think about it. Like I only have one particular option for me to go. So if my stuff gets hacked, well, that's just a cost of business. I don't have to think about it too more, too much more and make a business decision about whether to pay this or not. It just kind of is what it is. Um, I would hope that businesses are smarter than that, but I'm not necessarily sure that a lot are. Well, and what about when that business is a law firm and what's gotten hacked is client data and that client data, it, you know, can reveal highly sensitive deals or, or personal information or, or whatever else. That's a really tough call for a law firm, you know, when those, uh, when, when those uh, ransomware attackers start posting that stuff up in the dark web and uh, suddenly your client documents are, are uh, being made available for anybody to see, uh, even if there's a law, <laughs> you've got to you've got to really weigh uh, protecting your clients versus uh, the risk of uh, perhaps crossing some law. I don't know. That's 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 a not a good choice. That's a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and yeah, I mean, it might stop some people from acting if they know they're not going to get paid. But some people are going to do this for free. Some people are are, are just doing this because because right. they want to show they can do it or they want to, you know, so so dissension and chaos and. You know, doesn't even it doesn't even count for state actors too. So so yeah, I mean, it's not it, it might stop some people, but you know, it, it's you know, I mean, it, you're never going to stop all all people from doing it. Yeah, yeah. Back to the Panama Papers sort of deal, um, where that wasn't ransomware at all. It was just, hey, this is a law firm that serves a lot of celebrities. Wouldn't it be interesting to see what they're talking about and release some of that info? <laughs> like these cyber attacks aren't going to be going away anytime soon. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, and the other thing I was thinking about is, it, you know, it, it strikes me that it's, it's never a good idea to put, you know, a business in a position to, to knowingly and intentionally decide to break the law to pay a ransom that they're not supposed to pay in order to, in order to stay in business, right? Because some of these people, particularly a smaller business or even a larger business, they can't get their data, they can't sell their products, they could go down really quick. And, um, so, you know, you're going to force them now to break the law to stay in business. That doesn't strike me as a good solution. No. I just want to also point out Chris's comment in the comments, because it, it, it's very important to make the point that simply the, putting your data in the cloud doesn't immunize it from a ransomware attack. It's going to depend what kind of cloud it's in and, and uh, how you're storing it there and how you're how you're backing up or synchronizing the data. Uh, and uh, so you have to be really careful about that. Um, when we were talking about mergers and acquisitions, I meant to then segue over to Zach because he, he had one to talk about too, but then I forgot. So Zach, you want to talk about the one you have? No, it's no problem. Um, yeah, there were a couple in eDiscovery that happened this week too. Um, the first one was iPro uh, acquiring Xilab. And Xilab has been around for a long time. It's Amsterdam based, which is a little bit unique for an eDiscovery company. They're uh, known very heavily for their data analytics. Um, they have an analytics team that goes back years and is very well known also for their legal hold software. Um, and then there was another yesterday where Lighthouse acquired H5 for a lot of their technological capabilities. And I thought, especially kind of back to back, it was really interesting to see just kind of the expansion outside of normal e-discovery litigation that a lot of these companies have are taking. Like that's something that we've talked about before and I think it's going to only continue. But both of these were a very stark example of uh, iPro told me explicitly, yeah, we're trying to go left in the EDRM. We want to get into the information governance, into the data analytics space because that's what our clients and especially corporate clients are looking for increasingly. Um, and with Lighthouse and H5, uh, Victoria can speak more to that one because she wrote the article for us, but they were saying a lot of the same thing where as we're looking to move into the corporate market and not just litigators and discovery, we're looking for more of those tech capabilities in what we're doing and kind of expanding beyond just our normal like document review, what have you in what we're doing. Um, so I think you're only gonna continue to see that from the e-discovery. Uh, community uh, at which was already doing a lot of or having a lot of consolidation before, but I think they're going to start snapping up companies that are adjacent, but not necessarily pure e-discovery itself. Yeah. Yeah. Victoria, yeah, do you want to mention that? Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. When I was speaking to Lighthouse in H5 yesterday, they were definitely, Lighthouse was saying like they were already in the corporate legal department um, that was already their main client base, but they said like they've seen a shift and like they're um, embracing the cloud and they want to digitize their services and they're leaning less on um, linear manual review and they want to have the technology and Lighthouse wanted to have that technology, the power that kind of like, okay, you guys actually want to start using technology to dive deeper into um, your data. They wanted to acquire a company to, um, uh, to spearhead that. So I thought it was interesting to see, especially, and I said, oh, is it because of COVID-19? They said, no, this was going on prior than that, but just kind of like H5, they had been in talks with, and they just kind of said, now was the time of like, okay, we'll um, make this acquisition to kind of like be in charge of that leadership. And it is interesting what Zach was saying, like we're starting to see e-discovery companies, like they're maturing, they're trying to jack you up to make sure like they're the go-to company. Um, well, e-discovery provider, and they're saying we have to um, you know, focus a little bit more on the left side of EDRM. So I think it's interesting and just kind of like as their client base is maturing and their needs are kind of changing, you're seeing e-discovery companies either saying we don't have the scale to get to that level or they're saying we'll acquire our peers to get to that level. So it's interesting. Also, the, uh, we're also seeing kind of the marriage in these mergers, we're seeing a little bit of the marriage of services and technology. I think in the early days of e-discovery, they were much more kind of one or the other. You were either a services provider and then you would use some third-party companies' technology uh, or maybe several third-party companies' technology uh, or you're a tech company and you might have some sort of limited services around, you know, using some of your tools, but but not but then you, you'd have uh, outside partners for more extensive consulting work. Uh, and both of these mergers kind of suggest bringing more of that together under one roof. Definitely with Lighthouse, like he was um, emphasizing, like they didn't have that many, it sounds like um, much when it came to consulting and bringing on H5 and they mentioned like linguistics and processes that have really helped them, even though they're saying, oh, you know, our clients want a little bit less more manual review, but bringing on those experts, it sounds like that's something that they're really looking for. Like this is really bolstering their abilities when it comes to consulting. So that's interesting. Like, of course, like we're getting more tech savvy, but we also need those um, experts to provide like their expertise and to kind of hold, um, hold the hands of our clients to help them get um, what they need done. So that was interesting. Yeah. Victoria, while we're talking to you, you had another uh, interesting story this week on uh, fewer, fewer support staff people. Yeah, this is based off of Big Hands, um, the workflow automation tech provider. They released a survey of a little bit under a thousand um, law firms in North America, UK, and Asia Pacific, where they asked them about their support staff. And kind of like unsurprising, given like what we talked about over the um, past year, that law firms let go of some of their support staff during the pandemic, which wasn't really surprising, but I kind of thought it was notable that they said, not too surprising because Big Hand's Big Hand is a workflow provider. They said, oh, you know, law firms are turning to workflow technology to better manage um, the uh, support staff that they do have or that they're outsourcing to have a better like understanding of like their processes and everything like that. And they also mentioned that more law firms are turning to outsourcing as well, which is another trend that we've seen like even maybe decades back in the early 2000s started to see that. But one of the stats that stuck out to me was that they said that it was hard for the law firms that did have staff supporting jobs to actually fill those jobs. And they said people are retiring, high attrition rates, and the people that they do find, they don't have the skills that they um, need. So I thought that was interesting and just kind of like, um, you know, how will law firms deal with that? And I kind of wonder, do these outsourcing vendors that provide law firm staffers, are they also seeing some people saying like, hey, I'll do this job for a couple of years, but I'm not staying long. Like, is that an issue if you have high attrition? It's just kind of like, that'll be interesting to see like if the, if the legal industry has to deal with that when it comes to like their support staff, who probably isn't the most paid. So they maybe have a little bit less incentive to kind of like, oh, I can work my way up, especially if you see the trends where like these roles are going away. You still need them, but they're kind of going away. So that would be interesting to see. And I thought that was just kind of like interesting tidbits. Like you hear about the skill gaps and the needs and just like it's also getting out, getting out to um, the support staff put into the survey. Mm -hmm. I, have, I, have, I have a question about this. I, I kind of, I'm, you know, this is all expected based on what we've all been talking about. 
Um, but I'm wondering if there's, like you were just saying, there's going to be an, another shift in the other direction and it's going to be hard to fill the positions. Uh, you know, we're seeing more and more of these mental health studies come out about the, just the, the pressures of the pandemic. Everybody, you know, all, the, all this support staff was um, let go because the firms thought they didn't need it. But now everybody's, you know, overwhelmed, overburdened, you know, doing everything on their own is too much. So even if you add the technology, there's got to be a correction uh, somewhere with bringing back support staff. So I, I'm just, you know, it, I, I, I'm just wondering if, where you think that balance might be, or if anybody has any thoughts about that. I think there's, I think there's going to have to be a correction here um, back in, in, um, in favor of adding back in support staff, and and it will be a shame if they've lost all of this talent that, like you were saying, Victoria, that has all this institutional knowledge and understanding of the industry. Yeah, the institutional knowledge, just because people are retiring, like how, you're going to lose that and just kind of like bring on people. But if you have people kind of leaving early and they mentioned the big hand uh, representative that I spoke to, he mentioned that more law firms are considering um, hybrid work arrangements, not just for the lawyers, which I still thought like, oh, lawyers, you're just going to do that for lawyers. But he said, no, to actually incentivize like the hiring of um, support staff. They kind of say like, hey, you can have this flexibility. But I kind of wonder like, you maybe need a little bit more. I don't know how they're going to address that, but it is interesting what you mentioned about the mental health issues and lawyers taking on more administrative tasks. In the study, they mentioned, they cited that law firms, I think across the board, they said they had more lawyers, you know, doing more administrative tasks and um, focusing on non-billable um, matters. And it's just kind of like law firms don't want lawyers to, to <laughs> do work that, that they can't charge for. So it's definitely like, and Big Hand, of course, they're saying like, oh, that's why they'll put in workflow management tools, you know, better manage everything. It's just like, okay, that, and just maybe like, it, it has to change in some way. And I think being more efficient, and that doesn't mean you get rid of, of course, all of your support staff, but I, I guess maybe tasking them with work and how you delegate um, um, it to everyone, that'll be really important. But I like to hear everybody else's point. So go ahead, Victor, I'm sorry, go ahead. Okay, thanks. I mean, I think also, I mean, there's a cultural element too. I mean, firms are always so big about their law firm culture and you know, and, and I mean, at every office I've ever worked at, it's always like the secretaries or like the support staff or the, you know, the crew that, that they know, they know everybody, they know all the secrets, they know, you know, where all the bodies are buried, they know all this stuff. I mean, they're the ones who, who, who are really sort of like the gatekeepers of that, of that culture in a, in a big sense, you know, I mean, it's not always just the partners or the, you know, the money makers or that stuff. So, you know, yeah, I, I think there's also that, that aspect of it too, where it's like, you know, you can, you can, you know, you can outsource all this stuff all you want and you can, you know, bringing all these processes and whatnot, but it's not, but it's not going to replace sort of like the institutional knowledge and, 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 and culture that's built up over the years, like, 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 like for the people that they've had. So a lot of it depends kind of on what lawyers have gotten used to. And I mean, <clears throat> Bob, you, you probably remember, you know, years ago, there might be two secretaries for one lawyer because that particular lawyer was so busy and you know, throughout not in any so firm much. I ever worked in, Steve. I didn't. I didn't work at those big high-powered <laughs> firms. Well, but you know, as time went on, and and lawyers themselves could begin could begin to do more and more, without any loss of efficiency and time. And technology got better and more usable. You know, it would be very rare to see a, a one to two ratio now. And I think. The, the, the correction that we're going to see as a result of the, the pandemic and lawyers doing more on their own is, you know, recognizing that, that they will do more on their own. And yes, there's a place for the, for the support staff to come back, but I don't think that they will come back in the same amount as, as they were before, which is a shame because those are the people that, that need the work the most. But yeah. I mean, I think um, even a one-to-one -one ratio is starting to get rare. I, you know, oh, it's very tools rare. like yeah. big hand are all about kind of managing the flow of, work within a firm so that somebody's not sitting idle while somebody else has got piles right. of stuff to, to, to uh, have to tackle, you know? Yeah, I, I saw it go from one to one, one lawyer, one secretary. By the time I, I left the practice, it was one to four, one to five. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, yeah. It, but the technology enabled that some a lot too. So I mean, it wasn't, wasn't totally lawyers doing everything on their own. I mean, the, 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 ad, the admins could do more and take on more just as well. The other thing I think, going back to the institutional knowledge aspect, especially with litigators, 
is that not only are there you know, court rules um, and requirements that are across a particular uh, level of court, if you will, or particular county, the judges have their own quirks and rules. And the only people that really know them are those, you know, seasoned secretaries. Like there were certain secretaries, that they're the only ones that knew the appeals process for a specific type of court, including all these weird quirks. And they knew the clerks and they knew what you had to do. And just these, there are all these like strange things. And when you didn't have them around to file this appeal, it took so much time trying to figure out how to do it. And you can't just learn I mean, you can just learn that, but it takes time and there's a, a learning curve and it's very painful when you bring in a new secretary um, or support staff to do that. And if, and I think a lot of people, I mean, there's all these stories about boomers that have just retired across the board because of the pandemic. And I have no doubt that many of them were. Um, a lot of the legal secretaries that were those, um, is the word stalwarts in like these firms that have been around for like 40 years, I, I'm sure they retired and they have, an incredible amount of institutional knowledge and it's difficult to replace that for sure, even with well, a big it, hand or anything like that. And it was such a help to young lawyers because I can remember as a young lawyer that you know, one of the secretaries would come up, come in and book, you know, she'd bring my, my, uh, my memo back and she'd say, you know, Mr. Smith really doesn't like blah, 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 blah. And I would never have known that, but for, but for her, you know? And the other thing I think was interesting, I was gonna follow up on what you said is when I first started trying cases, I remember a senior partner told me, he said, who is the most important person for you to get to know in the courtroom? And I said, oh, I guess it's the judge. Clerk, clerk, said, it's right? the clerk and the bailiff because <laughs> they will tell you yeah. all the secrets. <laughs> right. And, and, and how to do them. things. <laughs> and if they don't like you, they won't call your case. That's right. You know, or they won't, they exactly won't tell right. you some little thing that you need to know about what just happened on another case that might help yeah. your case. Like, yep. yeah, or where to important. sit, where to, when to stand, right. all, like, all those kind of little unwritten, unwritten rules that each court has. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Um, Victor, you got a story this week that uh, brings back he who shall not be named. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I know in the grand scheme of things, it probably doesn't really matter. It's, it's, it's a fundraising, it's a fundraising ploy for him, it's a distraction, blah, blah, blah. But I, I do think it raises interesting issues as far as like what, what Twitter and Facebook are and the role that they play in, in our general discourse. Of course, none of that's in the complaint. It's all about him and, you know, what he wants to be able to say you know, on, on social media or, or be on social media, I guess, because whenever they try to like launch their own social media networks doesn't go well. Um, but yeah, it, 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 you know, this idea that Facebook and Twitter are actually like quasi-state actors that- We're you talking know, about Trump there, in case anybody didn't Oh, catch sorry, yeah, the, Trump, yeah. Trump sued Facebook and Twitter saying that, you know- Not Voldemort. Uh, <laughs> off. Literally about to make a Voldemort reference. Yeah. Well, actually, um, um, I had a, like, I had a flashback to, to Billy Idol's cyberpunk album because in that album, it's a concept album that he released that totally destroyed his career, but it um, talked about how corporations have become more powerful than government. And how um, you know the the only the only the only currency in the future is data. And I was just like, damn, did Billy Idol just accurately predict? He released his album in 1993. I'm like, did Billy Idol just accurately you know predict what was going to happen in 2020? But yeah, you know, that's another story. I, I I don't I don't think Donald Trump was listening to that album when he when he when he um, you know drew up this complaint. But maybe he was. Uh, but yeah, I, I thought I thought I thought I thought there were potentially some very interesting issues about you know the. The reach of these of these social media networks and sort of what their responsibilities are, but of course none of that was actually in the complaint. So, but but yeah, I mean, I I I think just just you know on the whole it kind of ties into this whole you know sort of you know debate over like what what's you know what social media companies what their responsibilities are you know like how much power they have are they are they too big um, should they be regulated should they be you know allowed to just do what they want as private companies. Um, you know, I, I think it does tie into like the larger debate over over the role over the roles and their responsibilities. But you know, this complaint obviously is was was more about him and his and his uh, his 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 wants and, and desires. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 I mean, the, the article that you uh, talked about says the case doesn't have a chance because the, the First Amendment doesn't apply to uh, private corporations. But uh, you got to wonder at some point whether that's how that, I mean, that's been litigated a few times and, and you have to start to wonder at some point, at what point does a, a private corporation so control the, the public debate that uh, there do, does become a, a First Amendment issue? I mean, it has to be the government. The First Amendment requires the government to be involved and that's not happening here, but 
um, still there are interesting issues raised. Although, it, I mean, it's also interesting that by, by the very nature of filing the complaint and getting the publicity, it, it would sort of counter what you've just, just said, you know, just think, well, Facebook and Twitter control everything, and, and yet you can have somebody announce that they're going to file a lawsuit and it's reported in every major, major public out, you know, uh, outlet everywhere and, and just gets just as much publicity. So I, <laughs> right. Wait, before we go on, I'm just noticing your shirt, Steve. What is going on there? Like, what is on your shirt? What is that all about? Uh, so um, it's kind of a long story, but when I started the blog, I was looking for some catchy kind of phrase or something. And uh, so I was out in Las Vegas and, you know, I saw this, somebody had this shirt that said no bullshit on it. It was some, some company or something. I said, well, that's really cool. So, so I had the shirt and, and a friend of mine saw it and she said, well, that's really, she said, that's a really cool shirt. I said, well, you think so? And then she said, well, you know, you want to make that applicable to your business and get some of those t-shirts made up. You could distribute it and get some publicity. So that's why. And if you go to my blog, there's a picture on there of me and Kevin O'Keefe and I've got the shirt on and he's talking to me with a quizzical look on his face. <laughs> so I'm not the only one that was like, huh. <laughs> Hey, if anybody wants one, if anybody wants one, I still have plenty in inventory. Let me tell you. Sign us all up. We'll have a whole no no bullshit edition of uh, Legal Tech Week. There you go. We try to have that every week, but we'll. we'll so, Steve. Yeah, you had a story this week, or did you have a story this week? I did, you're going to talk about uh, a story this week. I don't know if you wrote about it or not. Or I, I did write about it. it okay. It's the. Uh, the LexisNexis Enterprise Legal Management Trends Report that came out, which is a mouthful, but it was basically a survey of uh, billing and billing rates and alternative fee arrangements and their use and all that sort of thing. And it was some, some stats in there that, that I was frankly pretty surprised about. Um, one of them was in 2020, the, the average rate increase that law firms, or at least the law firms they studied, uh, charged to their clients was up three and a half percent increased over the year before. And the year before it was up 3.3%. Uh, so lawyers are clearly raising their, their rates uh, despite, you know, all this sort of, sort of stuff that people are, that you hear about clients being so cost conscious and all that. And, and in some of the areas the, the, the rates were even a lot more raised a lot more than that. Uh, regulatory work was up 4.1%, um, corporate up 4%. And I mean, it's, it, it looks pretty much like business as usual. Uh, and when, when you combine that with the reports, at least with the MLL 100 of revenues and profits being pretty robust last year, you know, it, it looks like law firms are really doing well. And, uh, you know, to, to me, it's a, a couple of interesting things that, that kind of flow out of that is, um, you know, when you talk about innovation and adoption of technology and automation and more efficiency, you know, here we are in the face of law firms going, well, what's the old saying? You know, it, it's hard to tell a room full of millionaires that their business model is wrong. <laughs> and this would kind of seem to be proof of that. And I wonder, you know, if there's going to be a sort of a chilling effect that we're going to see as a result of this. And certainly you could say, well, clients are going to accept uh, higher rates in exchange for greater efficiency. But that I'm not sure that that's the case since we are seeing increased revenue, increased profits. Hard to, and it's hard to compare all that with, with each other. But I thought the whole thing was, was interesting. And then the other piece that was interesting was the, the continued increase in alternative fee arrangements. And it's gotten particularly strong in a couple of areas. Uh, generally speaking, you know, is about 15% of the work they reported was, was being done or billed with an alternative fee arrangement. But in labor and employment matters and insurance matters, which are probably insurance defense matters, it was close to 25%, which is a pretty big number. Um, and, you know, there are reasons for that, of course. I mean, labor and employment are fairly predictable matters. You sort of know what's going to happen in most of those cases and you gauge for it. And on the insurance side, I mean, 
there's so much data that insurance companies have in order to, to, to gauge the effectiveness of an AFA that they can do that pretty efficiently. But, you know, I wonder if at some point we're going to get to, to, the, to the day where for insurance defense, it could be 75, 85, 90% of the work even um, will be done with AFAs. And that'll, that would have a fundamental change in the way of how lawyers practice those cases, I think. Uh, I know it did for me when I did an alternative fee arrangement in the late 90s. It changed the way that I looked at cases and how to handle them and what needed to be done or didn't need to be done. So the, the whole piece was, uh, the whole the survey was uh, a, lot of, a lot of good, interesting facts in there that see how they all play out over the over the coming months and years. That's interesting. I wonder um, how much of those uh, changes in billing rates were either already introduced or already in the works prior to the onset of the pandemic. Did it, did it talk about that at all? It, it did not, although, you know, they did talk about factoring in the impact of the pandemic. But you know, even if, I mean, it, it, it's an interesting point you make, Bob, because yes, that could be true on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, you could see businesses saying, look, I know we agreed to a rate increase, but now this pandemic has hit the fan. We, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. We, we, we got we to gotta back off that agreement. We can't pay you. But there's no indication that that exactly happened. And I guess it, it, it's funny to me because as a practicing lawyer, I, I used to do work for a very large corporation and I won't tell you who it is, I don't want to name them, but you know, their general counsel every year would complain, you know, law firms, they're the only vendor that we have that just automatically asks for a price increase every year. I don't even try to justify it. Everybody else tries to reduce what they're charging as blah, blah, blah. Yet every single year they accepted the rate increase. Right, <laughs> so, right. So go figure, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It also, I, I just wonder, I mean, there's a lot of sort of conflicting data over the uh, impact of the past year on law firms. Just a couple of weeks ago, I wrote about the Volters Kluwer Future Ready Lawyer report that came out uh, and, and they had, I don't think they had any data in there on billing rates, but they did have data on whether business was up or down for law firms. And they had found that only 30% of law firms saw an increase in their business over the, during, during 2020. And that in fact, 40% of law firms saw their business drop down. So that doesn't necessarily right. tie to rates perhaps. And, and, uh, but, but, you know, certainly it, it wasn't a, a great year for, for everyone across the board. Right. And uh, I think uh, that's right. I mean, and, and the size of the firm, I think, you know, has a lot to do. One of the, one of the statistics from the Lexus Nexus report was that 49% of all the fees that were paid in 2020 were paid to the 50 largest law firms, yeah. which, you know, you, in some respects, you could say, well, the rich are just getting richer and the poor, right. you know, the less rich are getting less rich, maybe is the way to put it. But uh, I think kind of what we're seeing is, you know, when you talk about the legal marketplace, we're really talking about a whole bunch of different businesses with a lot of different business characteristics. You know, the, an AMLAW 50 firm has got a totally different structure, price structure, business model, apart from general generic business billable hours, but they, they view the business a whole lot differently than a, you know, damn law 201 firm that has a completely set of problems. And, and it really gets, you know, interesting when you start talking about the, the billable hour firms versus the contingency fee law firms, that is a completely different business model. I mean, they, yep. there's no That's even, fair. no sense talking about them in the same uh, sentence or same concept really, because it, it's like, a, they're just different and how they right. view the world is different. Yeah, right. And like practice areas of firms, when you get into the smaller firms, their practice areas can um, absolutely control everything from billing to client intake. Um, right. And it's it really is one firm can be so different from the other from start to finish of a case. So it is very interesting. Yeah, I mean, we kind of saw like, you know, kind of kind of heading out of the recession uh, from, you know, 2000, 2009, that like, you know, you saw like sort of like this, this kind of separation of like your top, your AMLA 50 firms, maybe even like, you know, fewer than that, where it's like companies, you know, would still give like their big ticket that the company really important stuff to them. But then when it came to like their smaller, their smaller, you know, less, you know, less important and also maybe, you know, 
um, you know, not as not as not as high stakes stuff. They would they would look for smaller firms, maybe more, maybe some of the more regional firms, some of your you know um, like like lower tier second second hundred firms and whatnot. Um, and so it was the firms in the middle, like those like like those in the lower half of the of, of the of the MLA one hundred, and those in like maybe like the upper half of the of the second hundred. Those are the firms that were getting squeezed. And you know it'll be interesting to see if that plays out this time too, if that if that's more of the same. But I also kind of wonder if we haven't really seen you know, the real impact of COVID yet. I mean, you know, I almost wonder if like, cause yeah, I mean, we've seen a lot of these surveys that, that show that, okay, things weren't so bad. Like, you know, uh, the work was still pretty, pretty much, you know, it wasn't, you know, I mean, I mean, it, it was, it might've been down in some parts, but it increased in other parts. And, you know, if a firm was smart in the way it diversified, it, 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 it actually, it actually made money and it did well. And, you know, if they collected things on time, then they, then they, then they ended up with like pretty banner years. But I, I almost wonder if a lot of that was just because, you know, we haven't really seen the full impact of COVID yet. I mean, maybe, you know, some of the government, maybe some of the governmental programs that were instituted, some of the, some of the moratoriums, some of the, you know, various things that were to kind of, kind of, kind of put in place, kind of delayed sort of the onset of some of the, because I mean, you know, everyone, everyone thought, oh, well, bankruptcy is going to explode and it didn't. So, well, maybe it's coming, you know, um, you know, maybe, maybe once, once the, once the eviction moratorium comes out, maybe all, maybe all these housing, housing, housing issues and, 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 and landlord tenant stuff, maybe that's going to explode. So I don't know. I, I almost kind of wonder if, if if we're sort of, you know, um, putting a little too, you know, kind of maybe 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 putting a too fine spin on things uh, uh, with regards to how things were this, this past year. But who knows? Maybe maybe you know maybe that won't happen. Yeah. No, I think you're right. And you know, <clears throat> the other piece, of course, is you know with with the litigators, you know that their their pipeline was in many ways shut off as of. March, February, March of last year, and now many of those people they're they're panicking because all of a sudden this huge pig in the in the boa constrictor is starting to move, and you know they got they got six trials set and you know twenty five depositions and seventeen trips, and they're scrambling trying to figure out how in the world are we going to get all this accomplished, uh, and so what's the impact of that is you know I mean the supply and demand curve would perhaps suggest that maybe their rates will move up because there'll be so much in demand. Who knows? But you're right, Victor. I mean, I, I don't think we will know the full impact of this for a long time. Pig in the boa constrictor is the metaphor of the day for uh, this conversation. I like that. Molly, you didn't have anything this week, right? Or did you have anything you want to talk about? I think Threw in the the Wall Street Journal piece on the, yeah. the cyber defense we center. Mentioned before, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Anything else you want to add on? No, I was I was trying to. I, my question for Steve really, I'm going to look for this and bring it up another time. But I I was looking through Bill Henderson's um, research because um, he has a chart somewhere about uh, showing the rise in costs but the decrease in collections or the rise in bill in. Um, in uh, billing rates and decrease in collections, and he he talks uh, about that in in one piece, and I, I'm I'm just having trouble putting my fingers on it, so I want to I want to look at that and compare it to some <laughs> right. of that data with the rising that's good point billing yeah that's a good point yeah yeah all right anybody have uh, any good of the order before we wrap up today anything else anybody <laughs> wants to talk about. All right, then we will be back next week with more mergers and acquisitions, no doubt, and other news from the world of legal tech and innovation. Uh, thanks to everybody for uh, tuning in today and uh, hope to see you back next week.